you have your copy of God's Word, would you take it and turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4, Ephesians chapter 4. In our consideration of Ephesians 4, verses 1 to 16, today we come to look at verses 7 through 16. We have, Lord willing, today and next Lord's Day uh, to finish our look at Ephesians chapter 4. And I remember Ryan asking me back, uh, I don't know, maybe some months ago, um, if we could make five sermons out of Ephesians chapter 4. And I thought, we can make five sermons out of the first word in Ephesians chapter 4. And um, I am feeling the strain of having to move quickly through a text in the Bible Um, there are so many things uh, to pause on and consider as we move through this text, and they would not be side trails. They would not be little diversions. They would be things that are central to the text. So I do ask again for your prayer as we try to make the most of the time we have in the next few Lord's Days together. I want to get right to the passage, and there are several things I'd like to do Uh, you ought to have a handout. You ought to have the bulletin, and the back of the bulletin or somewhere in the bulletin is an outline, uh, but the men were passing out a handout. So if you don't have one of those, maybe you can find one toward the back. They're floating around somewhere. Uh, Part of that handout is the same thing as you have for the most part in the bulletin, but then there's an extra little thing on the back that will make our way through that also. We're going to read the text uh, out of the New American Standard, so you will need your Bible open as well as that outline you see on that sheet. And then we're going to try to lay out the text. Several things I want to do with that, all right? First, I want to focus our attention on a central theme in those verses, verses 7 to 16. And we're going to find that the central theme in verses 7 to 16 is closely related to that central theme that we saw in verses 1 to 6. We'll make some comment about that. Then I want us to look at the sheet that you have in your hand that maybe you're already looking at and you're wondering why are all these underlines and marks and different things. kind of looks like a John Madden playbook for an outline. If any of you are old enough to remember John Madden and all those marks he'd make on Monday Night Football and you're seeing all the X's and the O's and the arrows and stuff. Well, we're going to walk through that together. I'm going to highlight some different maybe translation alternatives that I give there on that sheet. We'll try to explain the text a little bit and make some application as we go. I'm under no delusion that we're going to get through all three of these things. We're going to get through, I hope, Lord willing, number one. All right? So all the extra room you have in your your bulletin and on your note sheet, you can just use all that because we're not going to get to two and three today. So if you have your Bible, look with me at Ephesians chapter 4. And let's read verses 7 through 16. Ephesians 4, 7 through 16. And here I'm reading from the New American Standard text. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself, also he who ascended far above all the heavens, so that he might fill all things. And he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, 
from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. I want to begin by focusing on what I would consider the central theme in this particular portion of this larger text from verses 1 to 16, that text we're looking at today, verses 7 through 16. And that central theme we find in verse 13, in verse 13. And it simply says, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Now, Lord willing, we'll come back to this text next Lord's Day and lay out the whole of the text, but I want you just to notice that phrase toward the beginning of it. It says that we want to attain to the unity of the faith, to attain to the unity of the faith. We saw earlier in our study these last several weeks in verses 1 to 6, there was another phrase that sounded very much like that, but not attain to the unity of the faith, but back in verse 3, to preserve the unity of the Spirit. That is, the, that, that is at the heart of the admonition in the broad context here, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which we've been called. We must do two things. We must preserve the unity of the Spirit amongst one another, and we must attain to the unity of the faith. Well, we've kind of spent time for several weeks now looking at that phrase there as it's set within the context of verses 1 to 6, to preserve or to maintain, as some translations have, to maintain the unity of the faith. In other words, this is something we have. God has worked in the church a unity of the Spirit. He has brought us together. He has created this. It's an objective. It's, a, it's like an unassailable unity, we might say. But for you and I, experientially, subjectively, we are to strive to preserve that or to maintain that in the relationships that we have with one another. We're to do that, for example, back in verse 2, with all humility and gentleness, with patience showing tolerance for one another, in love being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The spiritual life of the body of Christ is to be one where we are manifesting the fruit of the Spirit in our lives in such a way that it gives a tangible expression to the unity of the Spirit that has already been objectively created by God. But here, in verses 7 to 16, everything is either moving toward or flowing out of this idea of attaining to the unity of the faith. We're going to find in verses 7 to 12 that in order for the church to attain to the unity of the faith, Christ has blessed the church with certain gifts. He has, he has um, supplied the church, we might say, with the means to attaining to the unity of the faith. And flowing out of verse 13, we're going to see that that unity of the faith is marked by certain things. It's going to be marked by the avoidance of error, and positively, it's going to be marked by the embracing of that which is true and practicing that together in a spirit of love. That verse, verse 13, kind of serves somewhat as a hinge for this whole section. As I said, everything's either flowing into it or flowing out of it. And the verse itself gives a full picture of what it means to attain to the unity of the faith. And this is somewhat the outline that you have there in the bulletin or on that other side of your sheet. Uh, the, the means of attaining to the unity of the faith, that's the gifting that Christ gives the church in verses 7 to 12. The measure of attaining to the unity of faith, what does it actually substantially mean that we're going to attain to that? How will we know when we arrive at that? And then finally, what is it marked by? What is that unity of the faith marked by in verses 14 through 16? 
With that said, to kind of focus our attention on that theme, I want us to spend just a moment walking through this outline that is provided for you. Now, I've called this on your sheet of paper there an exegetical outline, all right? Usually, I do this when I have a large text to kind of work through. Uh, I just, uh, it's, it's not really a rocket science. I just copy-paste from my Bible software into my word processor, and I start looking for phrases. And I, just, I start off just doing this in English. So if you're sitting there going, I could never do this. I don't know Greek. Or I don't know Hebrew. And uh, it's okay if you just use your Bible. You don't need to feel guilty for doing that, all right? And you just start to look like you might do with your kids. You give, them a, you give them a passage and a book or whatever, and you want them to kind of pick that thing apart and find the nouns and find the verbs and find the prepositional phrases and kind of get a, a picture for the flow of what's going on there in the text. And so I start just doing that with my English Bible just on my computer there or maybe on a piece of paper, and I just start breaking things up like that. And as I do that, I begin to see, okay, this looks like it's probably a pretty important section. Uh, maybe this word is not you know, too important. Maybe it is. And I'm just kind of beginning to weigh things out in my mind, and, and then I'll you know, pull out some study tools or some, a Greek text or something like that, and I make my way through it that way and I kind of check myself, and then I'll maybe get a commentary, and I'll read that commentary, and it'll, it'll check me. And, and as I find over the course of several hours or whatever, this outline that I have, it's, it's changing a little bit. It's kind of morphing some, all right? And then it kind of comes into a final form. Well, at this point, at 3.53 on Sunday afternoon, this is the final form. But, you know, you never know. Before we're done, it could change again, all right? Um, my form did not fall out of heaven. Uh, God did not like speak this to me. That's not the way it works for us, all right? We do our best to show ourselves as one approved. We diligently labor and all those kinds of things. And eventually, it comes time for church on Sunday. And I've found out over the years, you just have to go with what you got and hope this is the best <laughs> that can be done at the moment. So I want us to kind of read through this together. And after we read through it, I'm going to come back and notice several things. At the moment, don't worry too much about the lines and the dashes and all those kinds of things. I'm going to come back and, and highlight that for us in a moment. Considering what we just read in Ephesians 4 and verses 7 to 16 in our Bibles, right, you may notice some alterations or some changes as we read through this that you have here. Section 1, section 2, and 3, beginning in verse 7. Now to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, Scripture says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens, so that he might fill all things. And he gave, some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors, and some as teachers, in order to the perfecting of the saints, by means of the work of service, by means of the building up of the body of Christ. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith, which is the full knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed and carried about by every wave and wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, but by speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, by being closely fitted and held together, by the contribution of every touching contact, by the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Now, if you're not very familiar with Ephesians chapter 4, you might have heard that and gone, okay. If you're really familiar with Ephesians chapter 4, you might have sat there and go, I don't know. 
I'm talking to Jason when this is over because I'm not too sure about that. Jason is open to that conversation. But let me highlight a few things for us. General observations regarding this outline. The text falls out into, you notice there, three sections. Section 1, verses 7 to 12. Section 2, verse 13. Section 3, verses 14 through 16. Secondly, notice that each section is composed of what I'm going to call here subsections. Section 1, you notice, has two subsections. Verses 7 through 9, or 7 through 10, is a subsection. And verses 11 and 12 is a section, all right? Uh, Section 2 just has one section, or one subsection. Section 3 has three subsections, all right? Now, again, we're just trying to get our eyes or our our eyes on the page and our hands around somewhat the kind of the layout of this text. Now, within each of these subsections, there are relationships between terms that you, I think, it will help you if you notice them. These relationships between terms within the subsections are highlighted by a double underline. Verse 7, you'll notice the phrase, Grace was given. And the last phrase, Christ's gift. And then in verse 8, you notice the phrase, He gave gifts, which basically takes those two phrases in verse 7 and puts them together. Grace was given, Christ's gift. Christ gave gracious gifts. And then look down in verses, verse 11. Notice that whole section there. He gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and some as teachers. In other words, we're we're, we're kind of keyed into the idea in verses 7 and 8 that Christ is giving something to the church, and it's a gracious thing that he gives to the church. And then we're told explicitly in verse 11 what he gave. He gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. You might notice again, some relationships down in the third section, verse 14. This is a relationship of contrast. In verse 14, it says, we are no longer to be children. But notice in verse 15, in contrast to being children, which is what we once were, now we're to do what? We're to grow up. You ever looked at your kids and, you know, grow up? (laughs) All right, they, they get a little older, and you're like, you know, you're not three anymore. Now you're, now you're four. So now we're going to have big conversations. No, you know, when your 15-year-old does something that a two-year-old would do, you have this conversation. Maybe you're never condescending to your children. Well, anyway, that does come out of Janice's mouth every now and then. I'm not condescending. You understand that. I would not be that way. No, I would probably be that way, all right? But this is a contrast. You're not to be children anymore. What, what, are, you, what are you to be? You're going to grow up. So the Bible gives these two options, being a child and growing up. It doesn't give those wonderful adolescent years of youth, you know, the like 10 years we have right in the middle where you can like be stupid for like, you know, forever. I don't have to grow up yet. No, let me tell you, you have to grow up. That myth of adolescence, all right? The Bible doesn't talk about years of excuse while you can just be dumb and do dumb things. No, the Bible presents us as children, and then it says after that, what? Grow up. And then at the end of the phrase, in verse 16, it tells us on that very last line, causes the growth of the body. Again, this is to relate to the phrase that we are to grow up. Well, there's another thing I want you to notice here in this section one. It's in verse eight. Notice the all caps. Now, if you have a New American Standard Bible, then probably verse eight was already in all caps for you. I went ahead and put it here in all caps because what this means is this is a quotation from the Old Testament, all right? It's to kind of key your mind in, oh, Paul has reached back into the Old Testament to make a point in the New Testament, all right? That should be something that catches your eye. Notice also the presence of 
solid and dashed underlines in verse 9. If you're having a hard time sticking with these underlines and stuff, just give me five more minutes and we'll be through this this dark tunnel for you here, okay? Look in verse 9. It says, he ascended, and then toward the end of verse 10, it says, he who ascended. But right in the middle of that, we have those dashed underlines, and they're marking off the idea of Christ's descent. Christ descended. He ascended. What does it mean except that he had descended into the lower parts of the earth, and he who descended is himself he who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. This is uh, what we know as a chiasm. It's a structure where you have, if you're like a Shakespearean scholar, maybe you're familiar with that poetry in Shakespeare of like A-B-B-A or A-A-B-B or A-B-A-B-A-B, different different ways you kind of go back and forth in in poetry. Well, this happens here, and this is what's called an A-B-B-A structure. And the reason we line that out is because the emphasis in this particular structure is on the letter A. It's the first thing and the last thing that's mentioned. It doesn't mean the thing in the middle is irrelevant. It just means that the emphasis falls upon what's first and what's last. And that's going to lead us to a particular conclusion regarding Christ. What's important, yes, it's important that he descended, but what's important is not his descent, but what's important is his ascent. That's what's being emphasized by the text. Because it's from Christ's position of having ascended that he now stands in a position where he can give to the church everything she needs to attain to the unity of the faith. Just a couple more things here. Notice also there are several words in italics, and what these indicate is a translation that I have put in the text that was not there in the New American Standard text. You'll find this in verse 8, for example. You find it in verse 7, the very first word, now. You find it in verse 8, Scripture. Uh, You'll find it down again in verse 12, in order to the perfecting of the saints, by means of the work of service, by means of the building up of the body of Christ. And it goes on and on. There are several other places as well. And as we come to those and laying out the text, we'll try to highlight them for you and explain why they're there. Notice also that in verse 12 and verse 13 and verse 14 and verse 16, we have these little, I don't know if you can see them on your your handout there, little wavy underlines. It seems that Paul is kind of stuck on what I would just call triplets, He has all these little phrases where he puts three things together, and it kind of helps make for a neat order. Verse 12 has three things for us, verse 13, uh, verse 14, and verse 16. One final thing, and that's down in verses 15 and 16. You'll notice in verse 15, that opening phrase, but by speaking the truth in love, and then the closing of verse 16, by building itself up in love. This is a text we won't get to until next Lord's Day, but what what these do, what what these sections do by speaking the truth in love, by building itself up in love, they form what's called an inclusio or kind of brackets around that final section. Everything about that final section that is pointing toward the idea of being built up in Christ is shrouded in terms of love. Everything done within the body is to be done in the context of love. In fact, we could have translated that phrase by speaking the truth in love and by building up itself in love. We could have translated it by speaking the truth with love, by building ourselves up with love. Love within the context of the body of Christ is that in which we speak to one another and it's that in which we build up one another. You might even think back to the importance of the, that sermon that, that Ryan ended with last month in 1 Corinthians chapter what? Chapter 13, that love chapter. Everything is to be done in the context of the body of Christ in a spirit of love. Now with that said, let's come back to verses 7 through 12 and let's dig in here just a little deeper. Now to do this, I'm going to use the translation I have on your sheet. So you can either have those out side by side to compare. 
or just use, use that one. So look at it again here. Verses 7 to 12. Now to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, Scripture says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. And he gave. What did he give? What are these gracious gifts to the church? Some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers, or some as pastors, see how I slip back into that New American Standard? And some as pastors, and some as teachers. In order to the perfecting of the saints, by means of the work of service, by means of the building up of the body of Christ. We begin in verse 7 with the opening word. In the New American Standard, the opening word is but. And in fact, many translations use the word but in the opening. And the reason that is, is because verse 7, they're seen as somewhat of a contrast to verses 1 to 6. Verses 1 to 6 have emphasized the idea of unity. Verses 4 to 6 in particular have stressed the oneness, the oneness of the body, the oneness of the spirit, the oneness of our hope, our Lord, our faith, baptism, the oneness of God himself. But, they say here, to each one grace has been given. I prefer to see this not as some kind of adversative contrast. I see him simply moving forward in his argument. We might say, now to each one grace has been given. Or we could say, moreover. Or we could say, in addition to. In addition to this picture of oneness, there's also this picture of diversity within the body. Unity and diversity do not stand necessarily in contrast. They're certainly in communion with one another. So when we open this verse in verse 7, I see this idea of kind of moving forward in the argument. Yes, he's going to something distinct, but it's not necessarily in contradiction to or in contrast to. Now, to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now, we've already, already highlighted that in verse 8, quoting the Old Testament text, it puts these two things together, grace being given, Christ being the one that's gifting the church, and it says here that he gave gifts to men. They are something coming from Christ. They are not something deserved. They are something that men are in need of or he would not give them. But they are something that they have not earned. They are gracious gifts by Christ to the church. And before he gets into actually saying what these gifts are, he, he kind of explains a little bit. He wants to draw from these ideas of ascending on high and then giving gifts to men, and he emphasizes the idea of ascending and a previous descending. Notice there in verse 9, this expression, he ascended. What does it mean except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth? And then he says, he who descended is himself also he who ascended, or in other words, he's the same one. And he ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Well, let's park for just a few minutes on verse 8. Therefore, Scripture says. Now, the NAS simply says, therefore, it says. It says, he says, Scripture says. These are just a multiplicity of ways that Paul often uses to highlight Scripture, or we could even say God says. Where does he get this from? He gets this out of Psalm 68. Turn back over in your Bible to Psalm 68. We need to look at this just for a little bit as background to what's being said here. Psalm 68 is often called a warrior psalm. It's a psalm like many psalms where the psalmist comes and he's laying a plea before God. He's overwhelmed by his enemies. His enemies are oppressing him. His enemies are threatening him. And he calls upon God to come and to arise 
in verse 1, let God arise, let his enemies be scattered, and let those who hate him flee before him. This same call of calling God to arise is found in other places of the Bible where God's people are, we might say, in trouble, where his people are being oppressed, where his people are being overwhelmed. And in these opening verses of Psalm 68, the psalmist reflects back about how God in the past has delivered his people. We asked the question last night, we were reading this at the table, and I asked the question, how does he know that God, who acted a certain way in the past, will act the same today? And one of the kids mentioned the fact that God does not what? God does not change. This is one of the reasons we pray. This is one of the reasons we plead with God, because God has been faithful in the past. God has come through for his people in the past. Therefore, we plead with him on the basis of his unchanging nature. We say, God, would you act in a way that is consistent with who you are? Would you act in a way that's consistent with how you've acted in the past? And would you deliver me today? He looks back to the Exodus. He looks back to Sinai in verse 8. And he looks back to how God has, has watched over his people faithfully. He speaks about kings that, that, that fled away, kings that were overwhelmed in verses 11 through 14. And then he comes down in verses 15 to 18, and here is where we're going to find our text. 15. A mountain of God is the mountain of Bashan. A mountain of many peaks is the mountain of Bashan. Why do you look with envy, O mountains, with many peaks, at the mountain which God has desired for his abode? Surely the Lord will dwell there forever. The chariots of God are myriads, thousands upon thousands. The Lord is among them, as at Sinai in holiness. You have ascended on high. You have led captive your captives. You have received gifts among men, even among the rebellious also, that the Lord God may dwell there. Well, central in this particular portion of the text is this vision, this image of God who's dwelling on this high and lofty mountain where his glory is filling the mountain, much like at Sinai earlier. But now it's not Mount Sinai, it's Mount Zion. And it's also not Mount Bashan. Notice there in verse 15, a mountain of God is the mountain of Bashan. A mountain of many peaks is the mountain of Bashan. Why do you look with envy, O mountains with many peaks, at the mountain which God has desired for his abode? Bashan was kind of a, a mountain region. Well, it wasn't in the past. It was in the past, but it still is today. It's still there. In the northern regions of Israel was this mighty mountain, and it was a greater mountain in many ways than Mount Zion. Mount Zion is not the highest of all the mountains in Israel. Mount Bashan was much higher, a many-peaked mountain, a much more glorious mountain by any kind of human estimation. And here he talks to the mountain as if the mountain is envious of the place where God has chosen for his abode. God has come and he has defeated his enemies. He has ascended up on high. He has led captive his captives. We have this picture of him taking these, these captives in his train. These are the ones that he's conquered, and he's ascending back to his mountain, and he's looking glorious. And he receives gifts from men, even among the rebellious also, the Lord God, that the Lord God may dwell there. So here God sits on high. Here God is in his glory. God has received gifts in the sense that he's taken captives. He's received booty, if you will, in the, in the battles. He's, he's taken this to himself, and this is all to his glory and praise. And we'll come back to that in a moment. Look in verse 19. In verses 19 through 21, we have a shift. God has done this in the past, but notice verse 19. Blessed be the Lord who daily bears our burden, the God who is our salvation. God has acted in this way in the past, and now the psalmist says God is going to do this in the present. But notice in verse 20, God is to us a God of deliverances, and to God the Lord belong escapes from death. 
surely God will shatter the head of his enemies. What have we done now? Now we've turned to the future. So he's been in the past, and he moves into the present. He reflects on the future, and in all these pictures of time, past and present and future, God, acting in a way that's consistent with himself, is going to deliver his people, defeat his enemies, receive their bounty, and this goes on for the rest of the chapter until we get to the end in verses 32 to 35. Notice at the end, sing to God, O kingdoms of the earth, sing praises to the Lord, to him who rides upon the highest heavens which are from ancient times. Behold, he speaks forth with his voice, a mighty voice, ascribe strength to our God. His majesty is over Israel. His strength is in the skies. O God, you are awesome from your sanctuary. The God of Israel himself gives strength and power to the people. Blessed be God. Now we see God high and lifted up and exalted, the psalmist calling upon peoples to give him praise. And we see God in verse 35 in his awesomeness, in his glory, in his sanctuary. And he's giving what? He's giving strength He's giving power. He's giving blessing to his people. Now, that's a real quick look through Psalm 68. But basically what we have here is a picture of God as a warrior who has come into the world where his people are oppressed. He has conquered their enemies. He has taken from them their treasure. He has taken them for himself. He has has gathered their glory, if we will, to himself. He's ascended up on high, and now he gives and blesses his people with good things. Paul takes, in Ephesians chapter 4, this not, this, not just a text, he takes the whole psalm. Notice in Psalm, 1, in psalm 68, verse 18, you have ascended on high, you have led captive your captives you have received gifts among men. I look back to Ephesians chapter 4. Notice the text. It says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Psalm 68, 18 says that God received gifts from men. Paul, taking not just the text of Psalm 68, 18, but also the whole of Psalm 68, elaborates on the picture and says that God not only takes and receives, but he does what? He gives. First he gathers, then he gives. And it's not, as Psalm 68, one might think, this is God. Well, what does Ephesians 4 tell us? Psalm 68 is a picture of Christ himself. It's a warrior psalm. It's a messianic psalm. It's a picture of how Christ has come into the world and has ascended back on high, and in turn gives gifts to men. I come back to Ephesians 4. This is why, in verse 9, Paul gives stress to the idea of ascending and descending. And it's important to get the order right. First, there's descending. Then there's ascending. Christ comes into the world in his incarnation. Christ comes into the world in his humiliation. Christ comes into the world where he binds the strong man, overcomes the devil and his demons, gives himself an offering for sins on the cross, putting to shame all those heavenly powers, is ascended back to heaven, and in this he now, look what it says in verse 10, is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. We might think of this as Christ descending and then ascending to the throne of God above where he receives this mediatorial kingdom and now he turns and he blesses his church with gifts. Specifically, the gifts that he blesses them with are listed for us in verse 11. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. And the reason that I put that italicized some as teachers is because I believe these are five gifts and not four. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. 
And we don't have time to go into the distinctions here. Basically, though, we have apostles and prophets and evangelists. We often call these extraordinary gifts that are restricted to the apostolic age and ordinary gifts of pastors and teachers which focus on the present day in an ecclesial or a church context. What I do want us to focus in for a minute, though, is on verse 12. Why? Why does Christ give these gifts? They're gracious gifts. They're gifts that are undeserved. We, we could extrapolate that they're necessary gifts. Christ's not wasting any of his effort. They're gifts that he has the sovereign right to bestow upon his church, being the one who descended and now has ascended far above the heavens that he might fill all things. And it's from that vantage point of filling all things that Christ then turns and bestows these gifts upon his church. Why are they given? Well, before we answer the question of why are they given, let's think about how they relate. All of these gifts, apostles and prophets, evangelists, pastors and teachers, these are all word-heavy gifts to the church. These are all teaching gifts. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. This is a very, very word-concentrated section. These are all men who would be called to, to, to deal in the Word of God for the people of God. Notice verse 12. Verse 12 highlights why they've been given. In order to the, for the, to the perfecting of the saints. And the New American Standard has the, the equipping of the saints, I believe is the term that's used there. Uh, but the word is better translated something like perfecting or renewing or repairing. It's picturing God's people as broken. God's people as broken by sin. God's people as broken living in a fallen world. And what we need is not, we don't just need equipment for the journey. You know, I, I don't just come to church and, uh, you know, basically I'm okay and you're okay. And what we really need is, we just need some more tools. Just give me some tools. I mean, I'm a good husband. Let's just give an example. I'm a good husband, but you know, I don't always do the things I'm supposed to do as a husband. Can you help me be a better husband? Or the wife comes in. Can you help me be a better wife? Or the businessman comes in. Can you help me be a better businessman? And so churches will often tailor their ministries to things like today's sermon is six ways to be a better dad. I mean, who couldn't stand to be a better dad? Any dads out there that think you couldn't improve on being a better dad? Nobody's hand is coming up, right? Okay, good. Yeah, because we could all be better dads, all right? Who could be a better mom? All moms could be better moms, so we could probably get every hand up, all right? Uh, who could be a better businessman? Make more money, do a better job? Sure, everybody could do better. Everybody could be better. But is that what we need? No, Christ gives to the church apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, not for our equipping, but for our perfecting, for our renewing. The word is used, for example, of, of uh, setting a broken bone. A bone gets broken in your leg. You don't go to your doctor and say, hey, could you just like equip my bone? No, you, you want your bone set. You want your bone fixed. You want it healed. The, the fisherman comes in with broken nets or torn nets. It's used this way of James and John, who were fishermen, and they were repairing their nets. Remember that? They weren't equipping their nets. They weren't just giving their nets some, some more net, like throwing more net at it. No, they were, they were fixing the tears. Or a boat that comes back from a journey that's got a hole in the, in the bottom of it. I'm sorry, Tom, I don't remember all the terms for boats, the hole. There you go. I knew Tom would know. And you don't, you don't equip a boat that's got a busted hole in the bottom. You, you repair the boat. And here we have this idea that the broad picture of what's going to be done here, the big, the big idea of what these men are called to do in their ministry of the Word is in order to the perfecting of the saints. They're going to do this by means of the work of service or the work of ministry, which is a, a phrase that's used in the Scripture to point to the idea of the preaching of the Word of God. And they're going to do this by means of building up the body of Christ. I wish we had more time to look at that, but I, I need to get, especially with this first particular point, I want to get to a point of application. All right? 
If this is the case, that Christ has given gifts to the church, and these are preaching gifts, and these are teaching gifts, and these are gifts that deal in the Word of God, then the church needs to consider how well she prizes the preaching of Scripture. We're talking about merging. I see a few faces that I haven't seen before. Maybe for some of you, this is the first time you've been here since we started these meetings a few months ago. But we're talking about how to merge two congregations together. And when they're merged together, they become this one church. And the fundamental principle that I want to press upon you here from verses 7 to 12 is to show you that Christ prizes preaching. It's very difficult to talk about preaching when you're a preacher because you feel very, you know, like you're just trying to build up your own job or whatever, all right? So I was going to say, forget for a moment that I'm a preacher while I talk about preaching, but that would probably, you know, be contrary to the point we're trying to achieve. Christ prizes preaching. From his position, think of all Christ went through to do this. We, we, we can read this idea that, that he gives gifts. Well, that's nice. Jesus gives gifts. I mean, Jesus is a nice guy. He, he gives gifts. No, think about all the things that Christ went through in order to give these gifts to the church. You might consider, for example, Philippians chapter 2, where it says that Christ thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being found in that human form, became obedient to the point of death, even what? It stresses, even death on a cross. Therefore God does what? Therefore God highly exalts him to his right hand, that, that every knee in heaven and on earth and on earth, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We're speaking about Christ's humiliation and Christ's exaltation. Think of all the things that Christ went through in order to be in a position where he could rightfully and faithfully bestow these gifts upon the church. And the gifts that are highlighted here are indeed preaching gifts. Preaching should be ever prized in this church. And when I say this church, I, I'm, I'm not intending just sovereign joy or faith community. I'm, I'm speaking in terms of the church that we are hoping by the grace of God to be able to form that preaching should ever be prized in that church. John Stott, in his work on preaching called Between Two Worlds, he said, preaching is indispensable to Christianity. Without preaching, a necessary part of its authenticity has been lost. For Christianity is, in its very essence, a religion of the Word of God. No attempt to understand Christianity can succeed, which overlooks or denies the truth that the living God has taken the initiative to reveal himself savingly to fallen humanity, or that his self-revelation has been given by the most straightforward means of communication known to us, namely by a word and by words, or that he calls upon those who have heard his word to speak it to others. E.C. Dargan, in his monumental work, The History of Preaching, makes this comment that preaching is an essential part and a distinguishing feature of Christianity, and further, preaching is distinctively a Christian institution. Consider for just a moment the, the weight that Scripture itself places upon this scriptural or Christian institution of preaching. When Jesus comes into the world and manifests himself publicly as a preacher, it was once said that God had one son, and he made him a what? He made him a preacher. Jesus comes into the world in Mark chapter 1 and verse 14. It says that he came preaching. We read in Matthew chapter 9, verse 35, that Jesus went about all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom. 
In Luke chapter 4, we find Jesus coming to the synagogue and he lays out for the people who have assembled Isaiah 61. Turn to Luke chapter 4 for just a moment. In Luke chapter 4 and verse 16, he comes to Nazareth and he enters the synagogue and he opens up the word of God and he says this, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue are fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. When Jesus makes himself known in Nazareth to those that he grew up with, to those that probably knew who he was. In fact, later on in the text, it's going to say, isn't this Joseph's son? Jesus comes and reveals himself as a preacher. And not just any preacher, but the preacher, the appointed, the anointed preacher of God, prophesied by the prophet Isaiah. Later, he says to them, he says to his disciples in Luke chapter 4 and verse 43, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also, for I was sent for this purpose. Remember the apostles there in Acts chapter 6, when they're being overwhelmed by the distribution of funds or food to the widows that are being overlooked in the daily distribution. They, 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 they can't bear the burden alone of preaching and praying and caring for people So they say that they need to set aside men. Why? So they might devote themselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. One might consider Paul, the apostle in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, when he spoke about his ministry in Corinth, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, reflecting back on his ministry among them, he said, when I came to you, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom proclaiming to you the testimony of God, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And the conveyance of that truth of Jesus Christ and him crucified, he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, was through the foolishness of preaching. Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, I didn't ask for 2 Timothy 3 to be read today, but it set us up well for this. Because in 2 Timothy chapter 4, having lined out that wonderful blessing of the word of God for the man of God, he tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 4 verse 1, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, to preach the what? To preach the word. That's what Timothy was to do. Throughout church history, the church has put a premium on the preaching of the Word of God. I also didn't ask Ryan to share about the Didache this morning in Sunday Sunday school, but the Didache makes this statement regarding someone who is preaching. He says, Be long-suffering and pitiful and guileless and gentle and good and always trembling at the words which thou hast heard. This is an admonition to the ones who hear the Word of God. My child... Him that speaketh to thee the word of God, remember night and day, and thou shalt honor him as the Lord. Justin Martyr said in his first apology that on the day called Sunday, all who live in cities or in the country gather together in one place, and the memoirs of the apostles and the writings of the prophets are read. What does that mean? The gospels are read. The prophets are read. New Testament Old Testament, as much as they had of the New Testament at that particular point. Then, he said, as long as time permits, when the reader has ceased, the president verbally instructs, the president would have been the elder that was basically presiding at the service. The president was to verbally instruct and exhort to the imitation of good things. Tertullian says somewhere around 200 AD in his apology that on the Lord's day we assemble to read our sacred writings with the sacred words we nourish our faith, we animate our hope, we make our confidence more steadfast and no less by inculcations of God's precepts, we confirm good habits. 
Irenaeus, in his writings, Irenaeus was a late second, early third century church father, and he says this, these also preserve this faith of ours in one God who accomplished such marvelous dispensations for our sake, and they expound the scriptures to us without danger. These are the, the elders, the pastors who would preach to them. They expound the scriptures to us without danger, neither blaspheming God, nor dishonoring the patriarchs, nor despising the prophets. Brothers and sisters, the preaching of the Word of God is given this premium in the church of God, and it's given a priority in the gathered worship of God. I always find it interesting when my kids will come and say things like, well, my friends go to this church or that church, and they talk about what their church does. And preaching is what? If present, it's at the bottom. What has priority? Let's sing forever. We have an hour and a half, we have two hours, well, we should sing at least for an hour and a half. And half of that singing should probably be watching somebody else sing because we're in the dark and we can't see the words anyway. Or the smoke is too much to see the screen. John Chrysostom, once called the golden-tongued preacher, said, one only means and one way of cure has been given us, and that is how can the body of Christ be healed. Think Ephesians 4, perfected, repaired, restored. One only means and one way of cure has been given to us, and that is the teaching of the Word. This is the best instrument. This is the best diet and climate. This serves instead of medicine. This serves instead of cartery and cutting. Whether it be needful to burn or to amputate, this one method must be used, and without it, nothing else will avail. Time prevents me from talking about Ambrose of Milan, the bishop of Milan in the fourth century, under whom Augustine heard glorious preaching. Augustine himself in Hippo in North Africa in the fourth century, one of the greatest theologians of the history of the church. Patrick preached and carried the gospel to Ireland in the fifth century. Columba, Columba carried the gospel to Scotland in the sixth century, and another Augustine in the sixth century went to England with a band of missionaries to preach the gospel. John of Damascus in the east in the seventh century. Alcuin of York, who preached the gospel and taught and catechized men and women and boys and girls under the direction of Charlemagne. Peter Damien in Italy in the 11th century, or Bernard of Clairvaux in the 12th century. There's an interesting comment about Bernard of Clairvaux. It said that this is a Hughes Oliphant old commenting on the preaching of Bernard. He says, with Bernard of Clairvaux, Christian preaching experienced a rebirth Springing from the depth of his theological perception and the purity of his moral commitment, Bernard's preaching restored the art of something of the power and beauty it had known in the days of Basil and John Chrysostom, Ambrose, and Augustine. Brothers and sisters, the Dark Ages were not dark. I wish we had time to talk about those Dark Ages where many went out and preached the gospel of Jesus Christ. We could build all the way up to the point of John Wycliffe, that forerunner of the Reformation, who made the comment that the highest service that men may attain to on earth is to preach the Word of God. This service falls particularly to the priests, and therefore God more straightforwardly demands it of them. And for this cause, Jesus Christ left other works and occupied himself mostly in what? In preaching. Jesus gave himself to the preaching of the gospel. One final comment, bringing us into the time of the Reformation, and my time, I'm sure, is out. And this is by Luther. Luther believed that to preach Christ was to feed the soul and to make it righteous and to set it free and to save it by preaching. Once Luther was asked about the Reformation, how did it happen how did it break forth on the scene? Luther said this, I simply taught. I simply preached. Otherwise, I did nothing. And when while I slept or drank at drank a Wittenberg beer with my Philip or my Amsdorf, the words so greatly weakened the papacy that never a prince or emperor inflicted such damage upon it. I did nothing, he says. I did nothing. The word, and he's talking about the preached word, did it all. 
If Christ has gone to such lengths and has been exalted to such heights to give his church the gift of preaching, then his church should prize it till the very end. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, it is overwhelming as an inadequate preacher to preach about the glory of preaching. But this is as you would have it. You would call men. You would call men to take the word of Christ and bring it to the people of Christ. What an overwhelming and humbling task. And I would ask this day that you would, by your grace and for your glory, that you would help us to consider Christ exalted, ruling, reigning, glorious, having gone through so much and having been blessed so highly, having given the church such a gift. And though the world may and often does refer to it as Paul himself even said, the foolishness of preaching, it is by this foolish means that you have chosen to save your elect, to bring sinners to Christ Jesus, to grow us that we might attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And without this, we will not attain that. So we do ask, O oh God, that you would work by your Spirit the great work of blessing your people with the Word of God through preaching. Build in their hearts a prizing of preaching. And may we as a congregation never waver, never wane at putting a premium on that which Christ gave himself and has now been exalted for. We bless you, we thank you. We ask these things in Jesus' name.